Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. We come this morning to Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 68, which deals with the arrest and trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. These are the words of God. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must happen thus? In that hour Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the serpents to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we pray now by the Spirit, open these great words to us that tell us of the events dealing with Jesus' arrest and his trial before the Sanhedrin. These things happen, O Lord God, that Jesus might save us, that he might be raised and exalted to your right hand, that your spirit might come forth and draw us to him. So, Lord, open these words to us and fill us with their treasure. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jesus' trial before the high priest and the rulers is a showdown that has been brewing ever since Jesus' ministry began. 
And it has reached a climax with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem to choruses of hosannas, his cleansing of the temple, his daily teaching in the temple accompanied by confrontations and debates with the rulers in which he oftentimes embarrassed the rulers before the people, all of which clearly evidenced that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah without actually saying those words. Those things were consistent only with a man claiming to be the Messiah, a man who was claiming, as Jesus had taught many times, that the kingdom of God was indeed at hand. It is now here. It is coming into the world at this point. And it is clear that he was claiming some sort of authority over the temple. And the Jews of that day believed that the Messiah, when he came, would have authority over the temple to, to cleanse it, to, to make it pure, and to reconstitute God's people around them, to lead them to new heights. But the rulers have already become determined that Jesus has to go. He has to be killed. They have to find a way to arrest him and charge him and convict him and then get the Romans to sentence him to death. <clears throat> Now, to understand why the high priests and the rulers are so determined that Jesus has to die, you have to understand the politics of the day from the perspective of the high priest and the other rulers. And to understand that, we need to start in the first century and then go back a couple of centuries to the last great deliverance of Israel from foreign domination, which had occurred under the Maccabeans. <clears throat> The Maccabeans had liberated Israel militarily. They had cleansed the temple from Gentile defilement, and they had given Israel national independence for a short time. But no sooner had that happened than the corrupting influences of fallen man and fallen politics had begun to eat away at Israel from within once again. <clears throat> the family of the Maccabees, Maccabees was a nickname, was no, they were the Hasmoneans, the Hasmonean family. And so after they had delivered Israel, they took to themselves the role of high priest and combined it with the role of king and basically had established their own Hasmonean dynasty. Now the Hasmoneans were not of the family of Aaron, so they had no rightful claim to the priesthood. And furthermore, under the Old Testament law, High priest and king were two separate offices to be occupied by two separate individuals. The high priesthood came from the tribe of Levi, and the kingship, of course, came from the tribe of Judah. You often hear uh, today that um, ancient Israel uh, was, a, was a theocracy, meaning that uh, the church and the state were one. Uh, that's false. The church and the state were not the same. High priest and king were not the same office. Different tribes, different uh, men, uh, different offices. Uh, they were a theocracy in the sense that all of Israel, whether it was church or state or family, was under the kingship of God and under the word of God. But the church and the state were not the same thing in ancient Israel. <clears throat> anyway, the Hasmonean, uh, Hasmoneans established their own dynasty. They occupied the office of high priest, which functioned uh, in effect, as the king. And after that time, Judea came to come under the hegemony of Rome. Rome conquered that whole region. So now, once again, Israel is under a foreign power with the Hasmonean clan occupying the top position within uh, Israel. 
And so what happened then is that the Hasmonean dynasty made their peace with Rome. Uh, they probably desired, if you gave them their number one wish, they would wish for Israel to be independent and then for them to be, of course, occupying the role of high priest and king. But their number one goal was to maintain their status, to maintain their authority, to maintain their political prestige and their position. And so they made their peace with Rome. So as noted in the Gospels, the Sadducees, which was the political party of the high priests, they did not believe in life after death. They did not believe in the soul. They did not believe in the resurrection. They believed that the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, were the only Old Testament scriptures. They threw out Psalms, Proverbs, wisdom books, prophets, all of that was out. And when it came to interpreting the books of Moses, they had a very pinched view, a very limited and restricted and secularized interpretation. Now you add to all of that the fact that in the first century, it was Rome who selected the high priest. Israel did not choose the high priest. Rome selected the high priest. So you can see at this time the Hasmoneans who at all costs want to maintain their position, their prestige, their wealth, their power, they have to stay in good with Rome. And their main interest in governing Judea is to assure that nothing occurs that is going to bring the displeasure or the wrath of Rome down on them or down on Judea. So the high priests were very, very wary of messianic movements or kingdom of God movements, knowing that these would be viewed by Caesar as political movements, as Israel, uh, as Israel nationalistic independence movements, which in fact they were. At that time, when you had messiahs arise to a person, they were all ones who were leading nationalistic uh, fervor among uh, the Israelites, trying to achieve independence from Rome. And the high priests and the rulers particularly want to keep troublemakers away from Jerusalem at the time of Passover. <clears throat> Passover is the time, of course, when hundreds of thousands of Jews throughout the Roman Empire come and travel to Jerusalem to be there. It is also a time of very, not just high religious fervor, but high nationalistic fervor on behalf of Israel. So that is a time when Rome is watching especially keenly to make sure that there are no political movements arising from within Israel. So the, the high priests and the rulers are really, really keen about that time to make sure that there's no trouble. There's nothing that the Romans can look askance at and get upset at. But at Passover time, the only way that they can deal with Jesus and get rid of him because of all the people is if they can do it secretly. They've already determined, if you remember, that they're not going to try to deal with Jesus during Passover because there's so many Jews around camping all over the countrysides and everything because of Passover. They said, if we arrest him, people are going to see it. This guy's popular. He's got a following. A lot of people believe he's the Messiah. There's going to be a big tumult. There's going to be chaos. There's going to be a mob. And then here are going to come the Romans down on us saying, you could not maintain peace and order in Jerusalem. We're going to lose our positions. So they determined not to do it during Passover. But Judas becomes the missing piece. 
Judas brings them a gift. Judas makes it all possible. Judas makes it possible for them to, number one, locate Jesus among all these hundreds of thousands of Jews, figure out who he is, arrest him at night, arrest him quickly and quietly, get him before the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night, get him tried, get him convicted before the night's out, so that by first thing in the morning, they can get him before the Roman procurator, bring charges against him, get him convicted, get him on a cross before the morning is out, get him dead, get him off the cross before the Passover begins at sunset. That's what they need to pull off. Judas makes that possible. And so that is why these events happen. Jesus is now arrested. He's in a custody. He's at the residence of the high priest. And the members of the Sanhedrin are gathering. They've sent out servants to gather them all. They're being summoned. And they live at different places. And so what's really happening is that they're showing up in increasing numbers all through the night as Jesus' trial goes on. Now, all of these events, you remember, have been predicted multiple times by Jesus himself. Going all the way back to Matthew chapter 16, when Peter makes his great confession of faith on behalf of disciples. Jesus, uh, uh, he, he says to Jesus, we have come to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. From that time onward, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Prior to that time, he had been avoiding Jerusalem because he was avoiding conflict. He's trying to build up the disciples, build them up and teach them they're not ready. When it's time, he sets his face to Jerusalem. And he's, as he's traveling, he begins to predict what's going to happen. The first prediction comes right after Peter's great confession. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be turned over to the high priests and the rulers. They're going to convict him. They're going to mock him. They're going to abuse him. They're going to turn him over to the Gentiles. And he's going to be delivered up for crucifixion. But on the third day... He is going to raise from the dead. Now, Jesus has said that again and again to the disciples. The last time he has said it has just been during the, the Last Supper, which is in this same evening. They just ate the Last Supper in this same evening, and when they're finished with the Last Supper, they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the base of the Mount of Olives. Jesus has this time of great difficulty and trial as he faces what is coming. And as they start to leave the Garden of Gethsemane, here comes Judas with this big armed posse to arrest Jesus. And he comes up and identifies Jesus by greeting him and kissing him. Jesus has predicted all of this. Now, what we see as all of these things occur throughout these proceedings... Jesus, uh, his, his betrayal by Judas with a kiss, his arrest by a strong-armed posse, his frame-up trial, his false witnesses. Jesus, through all of this, shows himself to be above all these people and to be above all these events. He's the only one who's calm. He's the only one who is completely self-possessed. He's the only one who's in control. He seems to be the only one who knows what's going to happen before it happens, and that's exactly true. Jesus knows all of this, and he is above all of it. When Judas comes to kiss him and identify him, he appeals to Judas one last time. You remember during the Last Supper, even though Jesus has said, one of you twelve is going to betray me, and he signaled to Judas, I know it's you. He signaled to Judas, I know what you're doing. 
And the way he deals with him at the Last Supper, even though all of this has been laid down in Scripture, and we've looked at this, God is sovereign over all of these events, and yet people are making choices. They're making real choices in real time. We don't know how that works, but it does work. And he's basically saying to Judas, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to do this? And one last time here, he calls Judas friend. Here comes Judas to betray him with a kiss, of all things, and he calls Judas friend. And he says, it says here, why have you come? Now, some of the translations will say, do what you have come to do. It's because the, the Greek here is, is kind of a cryptic saying, and it could mean, why have you come? Or it could mean, get on with it, do what you've come. I think it most likely here that Jesus is actually posing one more question to him, because he calls him friend. You know, saying friend and then say, get on with it, that doesn't really fit so much as friend. And, and the idea behind this question of why have you come, the idea is, one more time, are you sure you want to go through with this? It's one more opportunity. It's one last opportunity for Judas to repent. Of course, Jesus knows what is going to happen. Jesus calmly mocks the posse that is sent to arrest him. You can see that in verse 55. He says, if you come out like I'm an insurrectionist, that's what the word robber means. It doesn't mean somebody that's holding people up to, to gain, uh, uh, to get wealth. What it means is somebody who is a violent insurrectionist. Uh, a, a, a Rome would have called them terrorists, okay? If you come out as though I'm a violent insurrectionist, you come out with swords and clubs to take me, I've been sitting daily with you in the temple, in public, in open. You did not seize me. You see the irony there. If I'm such a bad guy, I've been in the temple every day teaching, how come you didn't come and arrest me? Why are you here in the middle of the night with clubs and swords? He tells the disciple with the sword, which is identified in one of the other Gospels, is Peter. It's Peter with the sword. Takes the sword out. And you have to admire Peter's courage. Whenever Peter says, I'm never going to deny you, you know, we often look at Peter being a buffoon. He really wasn't. I mean, he was a courageous man. He was a natural leader. All the other disciples follow him. He's a big fisherman. He's a businessman. He's a natural leader. He's showing a lot of courage. He's always the one who speaks for the other disciples. And here Peter pulls out a sword. And you have to give him some kudos for the courage and the grit for wanting to stand up for his Lord and to want to try to fight and go down swinging. He's obviously outnumbered. But Jesus tells Peter to put his sword away. Jesus makes it clear that it's not a matter of him not being able to resist. He says, I can summon 12 legions of angels. One angel would be more than sufficient to deal with this posse. He can summon 12 legions of angels, more than 12 legions of angels. It's not a matter of Jesus not being able to resist. It's a matter of Jesus refusing to resist. But he's not refusing to resist because he's a pacifist. He's refusing to resist because the weapons of that particular warfare, clubs and swords, are not powerful enough to deal with the real problem or the real enemy. It's a spiritual problem and the real enemy is the Lord of death. It is Satan. And those kind of weapons don't work on him. 
Satan is happy with those weapons. People fighting other people, clubs and swords and bloodshed. And now these people are the top dogs and they put these people down. And now these other ones come and they, and they take command and they're in charge and they put these other people down. That's the history of the fallen world under, uh, under the influence of Satan. Je Jesus intends to fight. That's exactly why he's going to the cross, because he's going to fight. He's going to take the world back, not by working out a deal with Satan. Remember, Satan said, hey, you fall down and worship me, I'll give it all to you. Well, then what's the point? Jesus says, no, I'm going to take it. Jesus is going to fight, but he's going to fight with the weapons that will actually conquer this foe, which is Jesus on the cross and Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus calmly and silently watches the rulers desperately try to frame him. They try to get false witnesses, but under the law, the witnesses have to agree. You have to have at least two witnesses who are giving the same testimony. Their testimony matches up. It corroborates one another. And these witnesses are all over the place. That's what happens when you have a bunch of liars, you know, because they, they're not just telling you what they know. They're trying to make it up as they go along, and so it doesn't agree. Even when they finally get two witnesses who testimony agrees, and they say this man says that he would destroy the temple, he could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, of course, that's a perversion of what Jesus actually said. What he said was destroy this temple. He didn't say he would destroy. He said destroy this temple. I will raise it up in three days. He's talking about him being the true temple, you destroy this temple, three days I will raise it up. He's talking about the resurrection. But nevertheless, these two witnesses at least agreed. So they now have valid testimony and a valid accusation against Jesus. Even when that happens, Jesus remains calm. And he says absolutely nothing. He's not exercised, he's not panicking, he's not protesting. He's sitting there calmly as the high priests frantically tried to get him convicted. Now the reason why Jesus is above all these people, the reason why he's above all these events, he's so calm and collected and self-possessed, is clear. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows that in spite of the wickedness operating to bring all of this, all of this to pass, everything is occurring according to God's divine plan. And it's his divine plan of salvation as prophesied in the scriptures. You see that in verses 54 and 56. Jesus keeps saying, this is all happening that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus knows that all of this is necessary to accomplish salvation. He has just prayed under the weight of all of this coming upon him. Under that weight, he has prayed three times asking, if possible, that the Father would take this away. The Father has said no. Jesus knows. He has predicted this many times. He knows. There is no other way. There is no other way to conquer Satan. There is no other way to deal with sin. There is no other way to deal with the power of death. He knows this is necessary to accomplish salvation. He knows he is the only one who can do it. Everybody else, every other human who has lived is under the iron grip of sin and death. They're not qualified. Everybody else is going to die for their own sin. 
He is the only one who can do it, and he knows he must do it alone. That's why he's told the disciples, you're all going to flee. You're all going to flee. And that's also prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee. He knows he has to do this alone. Peter circles around after fleeing and follows them uh, to the high priest's house. And he's out there in the courtyard with the servants. And again, you know, we like to make fun of Peter, but it's like at least he had the gumption and the guts to do that much. He's going to go. He sees this. He knows what's going to happen. He's going to be convicted. They're going to do away with him, but he's going to go, and he's going to watch it to the end. But we know what's going to happen with Peter. We'll get there uh, coming up. Uh, Peter is going to end up denying Jesus, denying that he even knows him three times, and he's going to leave in tears. Jesus will be alone. Nobody will be there for him. And Jesus does all of this with eyes full open. He knows exactly what's coming. His eyes are open. He is choosing to go down this path. Now the high priest is astounded, not at the charges brought against Jesus, but at Jesus' silence. Normally, you know, if somebody's getting framed, if you were getting framed up, particularly with a crime that carried the death penalty, would you just sit there? No, we would be jumping up going, that's not true. That's a lie. I didn't say that. That's not what I meant. Jesus just sits there silently. Jesus says nothing. Finally, the high priest puts Jesus under the strongest possible oath, an oath in the name of the living God. And he demands that Jesus declare whether he is the Messiah or not. Now, Jesus answers. And when he answers, he gives them a gift. He gives them what all these witnesses were unable to give the rulers. Jesus gives them everything they need to condemn him to death without any need for witnesses. Jesus responds affirmatively. It says in our translation, New King James, it is as you said. It's, a, it's actually a very cryptic response uh, in the Greek. It's the same response he gave to G Judas when Jesus says, one of the twelve is going to betray me, and they're all going, Lord, is it me? Lord, is it me? And finally, Judas says, Lord, is it me? And Jesus says the same cryptic response. You have said it. It's an, it's an affirmation. And so he says the same thing to the high priest here. You have said it. But then he, he adds, he goes on to declare in verse 64 exactly what it means for him to be the Messiah. Now, in that day... They conceived of the Messiah essentially like David or Solomon, a great political leader who is, yes, he's going to lead uh, Israel in a great religious revival and turning to God, but he's going to lead them in a great uh, national and military uh, 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 revival as well, and they're going to throw off the domination of the Gentiles. They're going to throw off the Romans. They're going to bring Israel back to national prominence, bring them back to their own independence, and like under David and Solomon, they're going to be the great regional power instead of the Romans or the Greeks or somebody else. That's the way they conceived of it. Jesus says, yes, you said it, I am the Messiah, but he conducts a very quick little theology lesson here on what it means for him to be the Messiah. Now, you see, it wasn't blasphemy to claim to be the Messiah. 
Now, they could put you to death for being a false messiah, but it's not blasphemy to claim to be the messiah. The blasphemy comes in in the theology lesson Jesus gives them on what it means for him to be the messiah. And that's in verse 64. It is as you said, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter, which is a word that means from now on. It doesn't mean at some point in the future. It means from now on. You will see the Son of Man. Son of Man is a figure from Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. He's the one that Daniel sees in his vision ascending up into heaven on the clouds, coming before the Ancient of Days, and being given a kingdom that will never end over the whole world, so that all peoples and all tribes, not, not just regional like with David and Solomon, but all peoples and all tribes over the whole world are going to serve him. That's the Son of Man. You will see the Son of Man, in other words, a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now he says, Son of Man, that's Daniel 7, sitting at the right hand of the power. That is a reference and a quote from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a psalm of David in which David says, The Lord, Jehovah, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, whenever you see all caps, Lord, in the English translation, that means it's translating the Hebrew word for the personal name for God, Yahweh or Jehovah, okay? The Lord, all caps, said to my Lord, not all caps, two different people, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay. So this is David referring to two lords, one being Jehovah, the God of Israel, and then to another lord, David's lord, someone sitting on God's throne at God's right hand until all of his enemies, all the peoples of the world, are made a footstool for his feet. And you recall the footstool in the tabernacle in the temple referred to the mercy seat where the blood went. So to have enemies made a footstool in this context does not mean have their faces trampled in the dirt. It means have your enemies become your friends. Have your enemies become your worshipers. Have your enemies become those who will willingly serve you. Okay, so that's Psalm 110. And then he comes back, coming on the clouds of heaven. That takes us back again to Daniel 7. So coming on the clouds of heaven, contrary to what we automatically believe today as individuals, this does not refer to a return of the Messiah to the earth. Because in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is coming on the clouds, but he's not coming to the earth. He's coming to heaven. So this is a reference to the ascension of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is saying that what it means to be Messiah and what it means for him to be the Messiah is not simply to be a great political leader like David sitting on the throne of an independent and regionally dominant Israel. It means that he is going to ascend into heaven, sit on God's own throne in heaven with the entire world as his kingdom, with all peoples called to serve him, and with God's guarantee that that is going to come to pass. Jesus says, that's who I am. That's who I am, and that's what it means for me to be the Messiah. Now that is where the blasphemy comes in. And this is the one thing that the high priest got right during this entire episode. For the things Jesus claimed for himself to be true, Jesus would have to be God himself. For the things Jesus claimed to be true, Jesus would have to be God himself. 
that the high priest got 100% correct. And that is blasphemy of the first order unless it's true, unless Jesus actually is God, which we know is true. But that was something that was patently ridiculous to the high priest and the other rulers. So they have this blasphemy, this gift. Jesus sits there watching them kind of make idiots of themselves as they're trying to frame him. He says nothing. And when he finally speaks, he goes, here you go. Here's what you need. But having sealed his own fate, Jesus goes on to guarantee them. He challenges them. He guarantees them all that he's going to prove to them in their lifetimes that he has in fact ascended into heaven and sat down on God's throne with all the world subject to him just as Daniel 7 and Psalm 110 predicted. He says, you will see, you is plural. He's not just talking to the high priest. He says, you all will see this. So he adds to the blasphemy a personal challenge just to make sure, in case they were asleep or something. Here's a personal challenge. You all are going to see. You're going to see proof that I am the Son of Man. You're going to see proof that I have ascended on the clouds into heaven before the Ancient of Days. You're going to see proof that I have sat down on God's own throne. You're going to see proof that God has given me all the worlds and all the peoples as my kingdom. And my kingdom will never end, and all peoples will come to serve me. You will see proof of that. Of course, as Jesus has made clear elsewhere, the proof they're going to see is the Roman legions coming in 40 years later to completely destroy Jerusalem and completely destroy the temple. In other words, what they're going to see is Jesus is, in essence, saying to them, You judge me, you're not my judge. I'm your judge. And you're going to see proof of who the judge is. You're going to see proof that God has exalted me. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but he has committed all judgment into the hands of the Son. We often conceive, you know, uh, God the Father being this severe, uh, angry judge up there. And Jesus is the nice Son who's trying to talk him into you know, chilling out every once in a while. It's like the Father is not the judge. He has committed all judgment into the hands of Jesus. Jesus is the judge. So, these are remarkable events. And as we think about what difference they make for us, I want to draw a couple of applications uh, to your attention. The, one, the first one is, is a personal one. And that is this. What we see in these events is Jesus living out his own saying that whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's in Matthew chapter 16, 25. He actually said that a couple of times in his uh, ministry. So he says, look, if you desire to save your life, if you grab hold of your life, if you hold your life with a clenched fist, which is what we're all born doing, because we are all convinced that nobody cares about our happiness the way we do, and nobody knows what's best for us like we do. 
and we hold on to our lives like this. Jesus says, if you do that, you're going to lose your life. Your life is going to turn to ashes. But Jesus says this, if you will open your hand and you will let go of your life for my sake, essentially, if you will give your life to me, let go, open that hand up, give your life to me, and in your mind, that's going to be, I'm just losing my life. I'm just giving it over to somebody else. Jesus says, you will find it. Now, what we see in these events is that that's, just, that's not just a nice saying that Jesus had for his followers. That was not, that's not a power play by a control freak. That's not a guy saying, look, I'm telling you this, and basically, I'm, I'm using this as a method of control. No, Jesus lived this out. It tells us in the book of Hebrews that there's a lot of examples for us in the Bible of how, what it means to believe in God and what it means to trust Him and what it means to give your life to Him. And so in Hebrews 11, we call that the Hall of Fame of Faith. It names all of these Old Testament saints and how they lived by faith. But the number one person that we're called upon to look to to see what faith is, is Jesus. Don't forget that just because Jesus was God doesn't mean that He wasn't also man. He was also 100% man. He also shows us what it means to be a human being, what it means to trust the Heavenly Father completely, what it means to lose your life. If anybody ever lost their life, if anybody ever got a raw deal, it was Jesus. If anybody had their potential snuffed out, it was Jesus. I mean, he dies at 33. You know, he grows up, here he is, he's... He's the God-man. He's the Messiah. He grows, home, he grows up in a very, very modest family out in Capernaum, which is not a desirable city at all. He grows up that way. He denies himself all the normal things that you would want in life. He denies himself marriage. You ever thought about that? He's a normal man. He's not sinful, but he's normal. He denies himself all of these things knowing he engages in his ministry. Everything he does is to give. He said, I did not come to be served. I came to serve, to give my life a ransom for many. He walks this path with eyes open to save us, to save us. So if anybody knows what it means to lose their life, it's Jesus. This is how we know that God's promises are true. Jesus has walked this path. We often say, that a great leader is one who would not ask their followers to do anything they wouldn't be willing to do. Well, Jesus is a far greater leader than that because he never asks us to do anything that he hasn't actually done. And done in a way that we'll never be able to do. Jesus has walked the path we have to walk in spades. And so I say to you, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus as your example. Do not hold on to your life like this. Don't hold on to your life with a closed hand and to and things, the, the things in your life with a closed hand, you know. Because let me tell you something. It's just as easy for God to break your hand to get it open as it is for Him to reach and take what's in there. Whether your hand is open or closed, it's just as easy for God. It's not hard for Him to break your hand which is often what he does to us in love because he loves us. 
And we're clinching. We're going to ruin it. We're going to turn everything to ashes. But God has to bust our hand to take it away from us so that we don't ruin it. It's just as easy. But it's a lot easier for us if you just open up the hand and leave it open. Give your life to God. The second application I want to bring to your attention has to do with Jesus' concept of Messiah and what it means to be the Messiah. It cuts across every human notion of Messiah or Savior. Messiah was meant the anointed one. It meant the king. It meant the savior. That's what it meant. In that day, again, the idea of the Messiah, the savior, the deliverer was a great political leader like David, like Solomon. And the Jews of that day took those Old Testament prophecies literally that there's going to be a new David, there's going to be a new Solomon, we're going to be independent, and we're going to be the top dogs in the region. But the Old Testament prophecies used the reign of David and Solomon as a picture, as a metaphor, as a type of a much, much greater reign of the Messiah. The religious conservatives of that day, of course, believed in the resurrection, life after death, resurrection. In other words, we'd say they believed in eternal life, but they divorced that from the Messiah. They believe that the resurrection would come at the end of history. They had no idea, at least at that day, that the resurrection is going to begin in the middle of history with one man, the Messiah. And that the final resurrection on the last day is not the beginning of something totally new, it's the culmination of something old. It's the full flower of what the Messiah has already brought into the middle of history with his own resurrection. And that in between, what you're going to have is a resurrection in essence of the world. You're going to have a transformation of the world and of sinners, one person at a time, by the resurrection power of the Messiah. So that when you get to the resurrection on the last day, it's the final step. It's the final full flower of what the Messiah has started. And you can see this in the disciples' reactions when Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. Every time he says he's going to be betrayed and crucified, he says he's going to raise. He's going to come up from the dead three days later. Well, the disciples get the death part. They get that. They know what crucifixion is. They've seen it. That makes sense to them. And now they see it being played out. They do not get the resurrection part. He keeps saying it. But to them, the idea that one man, the Messiah is going to be raised in the middle of history. It just didn't fit their model at that time, even though the prophets prophesied it. You know, when Peter preaches the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost, he talks about this. He talks about Psalm 16, which is one of David's psalms, where David says, you will not suffer my body to undergo decay. Well, Peter says, David's not talking about himself, obviously. We have his grave, it's with us today. We can dig up his bones. And his body is decayed, we know that. David's not talking about himself. He's talking about the greater son of David that God has promised, the Messiah. He's the one who is not going to suffer decay, even though he dies. He's talking about the resurrection. Peter goes on then to preach Psalm 110 about being sitting, sitting on God's throne. And he says, David's not talking about himself. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, 
The God of Israel said to my Lord, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about the Messiah. So the prophets have, have said the Messiah is going to be raised from the dead. The Messiah is going to ascend into heaven. And the Messiah is going to sit on God's throne. As Peter says in 1 Peter, he says, The prophets prophesied of the grace coming to us as Christians. He said they made careful search and inquiry. As the Spirit is moving them to prophesy, they're making careful search and inquiry to know what person and time the Spirit of Christ within them is indicating as he is predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. That's the pattern. The prophets understood that that's what was being prophesied, the sufferings of Christ. The Christ is going to suffer. And then he's going to be glorified. They understood that. But the disciples at this time, and certainly the Jewish leaders, did not understand that. They were not picking up on that. So the Jewish vision of the Messiah did not deal with the core issues of life, which are all spiritual. They dealt with political issues and economic issues and cultural ascendancy and all of that kind of thing. The core issues of life are all spiritual. Death, sin, Satan. Remember the Bible says that the sting of death is sin. Okay, Sin is the sting of death. Death is not the sting of sin. We have to understand it. Death is the power. Death is the poison and the power. Okay? Sin is the stinger, like a scorpion stinger, that injects it in us. Okay? That's how death gets into us. And that's why we sin. And that's what gives Satan control. That's what gives him his power. Those are the fundamental issues of life personal life, political life, economic life, cultural life, all of life. And the whole history of Israel in the Old Testament was to make the point that there is no sort of political or economic or educational or cultural solution that will work in this world. Because man's hearts have death in them. And man's hearts are bent toward unfaithfulness. As Paul said in Romans 7, he says, this was my problem. The law is spiritual. It's spiritual. But I'm carnal, sold in bondage to sin. He said, that's my problem. So all is of no avail unless you can actually change hearts. Fundamentally transform hearts. You have to get God's law from being off of tablets of stone out here, and you've got to write them on tablets of stone in here so that these stony hearts become hearts of flesh. And the only way to do that is to get God into man. And that's why you have the incarnation of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ. So the Jews, including the disciples, were thinking way too small about the Messiah, they were thinking way too small about the kingdom of God, and they were thinking way too small about God's salvation. Now, we have done the same thing today as evangelicals. It's just that we've gone off into the opposite ditch. We tend to see Jesus as a spiritual-only Messiah, and we see spiritual not as being the foundational issues of all of life, but we see spiritual being a sliver of life. 
the way we should see spiritual is that it's the foundation on which all of life is built, okay? Instead, we see salvation as being like, I mean, spiritual as being one room of the house instead of being the foundation for the whole house. It's one room of the house which you can compartmentalize and close the door. And so we tend to see Jesus as a spiritual only Messiah who achieves forgiveness of sins. But otherwise, we think we don't need a Messiah. We don't need help with politics, Jesus. We don't need help with economics, Jesus. We don't need help with education. We don't need help with culture. You know, we're, we're good with all that stuff. We're fine. But we do need you to just to get our sins forgiven so that we can go to heaven when we die. Well, you see, we've fallen into the same problem just in the, on the opposite side. We're thinking way too small about the Messiah and way too small about the kingdom of God, and way too small about salvation. God is bound and determined to save all of life. All of life. He is not going to concede one square inch to the devil. He's going to restore everything that he intended from the beginning. So we have to recover a whole Jesus, a whole Messiah, a whole Savior, a whole kingdom of God that relates to everything. We have to take spiritual from being one room in the house to understanding that it's the foundation for all of life. It doesn't matter whether you're talking personal, family, city, state, everything, every area of life. So I commend these two things to you. Recover the full Jesus, the full Messiah, the full Savior in your life and open up your hand and give your life to Jesus, because if you give it to him, then and then only will you find it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.